0: Hey, how are you doing this weekend? Good. Good. It's great to be with you. I'm Jeff Surratt. I'm one of the uh, teaching pastors here at Sea Close Coast. Glad you are along this weekend. Those of you joining us from one of our other campuses in the chapel or maybe you're in the warehouse or watching on the internet, we are glad to have you with us. We have a lot to do. We're going to have to get busy in a hurry this weekend, but I want to get to something very important. First of all, I want to introduce you to the newest member of my family. I think we have a picture I'd like for you to meet. Yes. This is Maggie Claire Surratt. She was born uh, last Thursday, six pounds, 15 ounces of the most beautiful grandchild in the history of the world. You may say I'm biased. It's just reality. You saw her picture. Okay. Sorry to all the other grandparents, but second place is still available. As Sherry and I had our first grandchild, now I know Greg has them in bushels, but this is our first, (laughs) caused us to kind of reflect back on our relationship. I met Sherry when she was four, married her when she was six. Um, We've been married for 28 years, and 29 years ago this Christmas, I... um, proposed to Sherry on Christmas Day. And I wanted to take her to a romantic kind of continental French type of restaurant. And in St. Louis on Christmas Day, there was a, an amazing little uh, uh, cafe open. You, If you ever go to St. Louis, I recommend it. It's called the International House of Pancakes. <laughs> and there between the truck driver and the arguing couple smoking over breakfast, I pulled out a box and Uh, asked Sherry if she would be my wife. And against her better judgment, she said yes. And I wanted to introduce her to my uh, extended family. She knew my immediate family, but I wanted to let her meet the, the, the whole clan and I made sure I asked her to marry me before she met the rest of the clan. So we drove up to my grandparents. They lived uh, in a little double-wide trailer in Carlinville, Illinois, Southern Illinois. And so we drove up there on Christmas Day. And inside this little double-wide trailer were f- at least 50 Surrattes packed in there. Now, if you can imagine, of the 50, I'm sure at least 20 of them were preachers. So we walk in... <laughs> Everyone's talking at the top of their lungs. Nobody's listening, laughing and yelling and little kids running around. It's just this huge cacophony. There's food everywhere and people everywhere and noise everywhere. And Sherry comes from this little quiet, very proper family and she walks into this huge mess of the Surratt family, and I finally get a little bit of quiet, and I announce that Sherry and I are engaged, and they immediately welcome her into the family, and she's a part of it, and she's a little shell-shocked, but it was, it's just a cool experience, and I, we don't get together that often anymore. I, I love being a part of that extended family with the, and, uh, uncles and aunts and cousins and grandkids and and we laugh and we cry and we fight and we have fun together, and we 're all kind of united around a common theme and a common purpose you, Have you experienced that in your life i mean maybe it 's your extended family, maybe you have a family like that or or maybe for you it 's more a team that you are on at some point in life in high school or in college. A, football or basketball maybe a cheerleading squad where you all were kind of united around a common a common thread or, or maybe it was a fraternity that you were a part of or a dorm that you lived in or maybe you've been on a, a short-term mission team where you all just have this bonding of heart and you kind of do life together and that's a great part of life and something that a lot of us miss on a regular basis our f- families are scattered across the country maybe there's fracture in our family Friendships can become just posts on a Facebook wall and and somehow we miss out on that, that community, that connection, that all for one and one for all feeling of the extended family. Well, that's kind of what this series is about, is finding that again in our lives. We're calling it A Church in Your House. It's based on the book of, of Philemon. Um, quick recap of the story of of, of Philemon is the apostle Paul is in prison in Rome. He meets a guy named Onesimus. He shares Jesus with Onesimus. He commits his life to Christ. Onesimus becomes a fellow worker with Paul in the ministry. Paul discovers that Onesimus has run away. He's actually a slave who has run away from his master. And Paul says, you know, regardless of right and wrong of that relationship. We've got to fix your past. We've got to go back and take care of some things. And so he writes a letter to Onesimus' owner, Philemon, and he sends it with Onesimus to, to give to Philemon, asking Philemon to set this slave, set this servant free. And so that's what the letter is about, is Paul's plea to, uh, to Onesimus' uh, owner, Philemon. Now in week one, Greg talked to us about Onesimus. And who is your Onesimus? Who is God calling you to let back into your life, to forgive, to love? Maybe, maybe it's not an individual. Maybe there's a, a, a people group or a community or a need that God is laying on your heart to uh, uh, help heal and help love. In week two, last week, Greg talked to us about the word kairos, a kairos moment, a moment when, uh, when the, the time stands still and God is speaking to us. And what do we do in that kairos moment? And this week, we're going to define what is a church in your house. At the top of your note sheet, uh, the first couple of scriptures from Philemon says this, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. We're going to camp out on that phrase, church in your house. Now, when we started this series, several people said, hey, the whole book of Philemon is only 25 verses long. How are you going to stay in there for eight weeks? I do want to point out to you, we're in week three. We're only up to verse two, okay? So I'm just saying, it could be like 2012 before we finish this bad boy. Let's pray before we dive in. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit that we feel in this place. Lord, I pray that you will speak through me Lord, that the next few moments will be holy moments, appointment, an appointment with you as we learn what it is you're asking us to do. What does a church in our house mean to us? And Lord, we just commit the next few minutes to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's kind of break this phrase down, church in your house. The first word Paul uses, church, is a Greek word, ecclesia. Can you say that out loud? Ecclesia. See, when you leave, at least you'll be smart. Go to work this week and you can just use Ecclesia all week long. Okay. Ecclesia basically just means a gathering or an assembly of people. It's two Greek words put together that literally mean called out. In other words, just a group of people called together for a specific purpose it's actually not a religious word. It's a secular word. In ancient Greek literature, it's used for any type of assembly where people are called together for a, for a particular purpose. And so Paul says the ecclesia, the gathering, the, the group of people gathered together around a single purpose that meets in your house. The word house is a Greek word oikos. Let's say that one again, uh, out loud. Oikos. In fact, this week, why don't you at home when you have guests over, just say, welcome to my oikos. And they'll just think, you're just the most smart thing. You probably eat at International House of Pancakes all the time. You're just kind of an international person. Oikos means household or family. It doesn't refer just to the dwelling, the building, but the the family that meets there, the household that lives there or that is a part of that whole group. You see, in, in Jewish culture... An oikos wasn't necessarily just the nuclear family. It would include mom and dad and grandpa and grandma and the kids and the aunts and the uncles and the stepchildren and children by a previous marriage. It would also include some of the neighbors. It would include hired hands. It would include slaves that were a part of the the entire organization. So an oikos was a pretty big deal. In fact, many times in in a Jewish oikos, there would be 20, 30, as many as 50 people all considered part of this oikos. And so Paul talks about the ecclesia, the church that meets in your oikos. As I thought about this idea of oikos, I thought about, what is my oikos? I mean, Sherry and I are empty nesters. And so if we had a church in our house right now, attendance would be easy. Sherry, are you here? Yes. Jeff, are you here? Yes. 100% attendance. That's great. Although some weeks half the people are gone, you know, so that's not good. But I thought about my oikos. It's bigger than that. I mean, my daughter, Brittany, she'll be turning 20 this month and she's at school down in Fort Lauderdale, but she's still very much a part of our oikos. We talk to her almost you know, every other day or a couple times, three or four times a week. She's part of our oikos. And then Mike and Hillary, they live in North Charleston, and, but they're still a part of my oikos. And Maggie Clill and Maggie Clare, we're talking to them about her maybe just living with us. We think that would be the best. <laughs> they don't see it that way, but she's a part of the oikos. But then I also have a group of guys that I connect with on a regular basis. And we're more than just casual friends, but we get into each other's lives. We hold each other accountable. We we uh, kind of just kind of do life together. And they're part of my oikos as well. And then I have, I have neighbors. I have a, a, one particular neighbor that they're elderly. They're really going through some health problems. They don't attend any church. And I'm and really trying to figure out, Sherry and I, how we can become more a part of their lives and they can be a part of our lives. And really, we consider them a part of our oikos, even though they're not inside our house. And then there's a couple that Sherry and I have met that live across town. And I, I, I would describe them probably as far from God. They really don't, have anything to do with church or, or with God or religion, anything like that, and yet we're getting to know them, connecting with them, and I consider them part of our oikos, part of our household. And so as, as we think about that, your oikos looks probably completely different than mine. Yours may consist mostly of friends. You may not have any family close to you here in Charleston and Greenville or in Columbia, And so yours might be friends. Yours might be scattered across the country. It might be kind of a mishmash of some relatives and some friends. But who is in your oikos? Now, the note sheet this weekend is a little different than than usual. It's not just fill in the blanks that I'm going to give you the answers, but there are several places where you can fill in your own answers. And I want to take a moment right now. Instead of waiting until you get home, just, just take a minute. And I want you to fill out on your note sheet who is in your oikos. In fact, if you're here this weekend with with family, with a spouse, maybe it's a friend or boyfriend, girlfriend, why don't you guys kind of brainstorm together if you considered it an oikos, a household, a a group, who would be in there? And not just the people who live there, but the extended uh, group. Go ahead and take a moment. Take, Take some time right now. Guys up in Asheville and Greensboro, you guys do this too in the warehouse. Let's just take some time. Brainstorm with each other, you can talk out loud. And uh, who's in our oikos? How many of you can think of at least 5 people that it would be How many of you can kind of if you think think it through could maybe think of 10 or more people A lot of us can can't we Some of us maybe 20 30 I challenge you to continue to to kind of grow that picture and figure out if you thought about an oikos a household a big household who would it who would it in- include So Paul addresses the book of Philemon to Philemon and the Ecclesia, the church that meets in your house, in your oikos. The interesting thing is, as you look at history, for the first 300 years, that's what the church was. The church wasn't buildings. They didn't gather like we are this weekend, but it was a group of of oikos that would meet mostly in houses. Uh, Sometimes it would be in a wealthy person's house that was big. Sometimes they would remodel the house, add a room that would be, be big enough for everyone to meet. Sometimes they would meet in public places they didn 't own any buildings they couldn't it would be, it would, they weren't allowed to own a church building, and they didn't need it because for the first three hundred years, the church grew exponentially, started with eleven, grew two thousand, grew to five thousand by the end of the first century, there were thousands and tens of thousands, and they grew over a million people by the time of Constantine in, in a little a, around three hundred a d if you are a history buff, you know that Constantine changed the church, changed the history of the church. He was the Roman emperor, and he declared himself a Christian. Uh, up until that point, Christianity had been illegal. Paganism was the, was the uh, uh, official religion. And the emperor said, no, we are now going to be a Christian empire. The Roman empire is going to become Christian huge changes, changes in the organization, changes in how the money flowed. And Constantine began to build church buildings for the very first time. They began to build cathedrals. And this whole influence changed the church because up until that point, the church was individuals. If people thought of the Christian church, they thought of the people. And no one saw themselves as an attender They were all a part of the church, but now something new came. Now you went to church and other people did church and you attended and you watched what happened in the church. And over the years, church leaders discovered that the better the show, the better the service was at the church, the more people would come. In fact, it eventually gave rise to what I call the the, the fan-based church. The better the show, the more fans will come. The more fans that come, the more resources you'll have. The more resources you have, the better building you can build. When you build a better building, you can have a better experience. A better experience will draw more fans then more resources, then more building, then better experience, and just kind of kept going and going and going. And through the years, the church moved from this movement based on groups of people, and it became this institution based around around buildings, and it became a fan-based operation. Now, there's nothing wrong with fans. Um, Jesus had fans. Jesus had hundreds, sometimes thousands of fans. But the point for Jesus was never to see how big his group of fans could become. The point for Jesus was always to see how could we take fans and turn them into players, moving fans to players. Because you see, there's some challenges with the fan-based church. One problem with a fan-based church is not everyone wants to become even a fan. There are people who, don't, who won't darken the door of a church church. Church building. Now, here in the Bible Belt in the South, a lot of people will. In fact, a good portion of your friends who don't attend church, who may be far from God, if you would simply invite them to come with you on a weekend, they would come. They've done surveys that have shown like 90% of people will come if you invite them. But there are a lot of people who will either never be invited or will never really darken the door of a church. And it's a growing percentage of the population and a fan based church just never reaches those people. Another challenge with a fan-based church is if you want a better and better experience, eventually you have to hire people to do that experience. In fact, you have to hire more and more people, more players, because people want to see a better experience, so more fans will come, and it gets very expensive to just continually improve the experience of a fan-based church. Another challenge in the fan-based model is that fans want to be fans. They don't want to be players. They don't want to play the game. If you go to a college football game, Clemson's going to play Carolina in a few weeks and it's going to be up at Clemson. And there's going to be 80,000 orange clad crazed fans. And they're going to be yelling. and They're going to be screaming. They're going to be excited. They're going to love it. It's going to be if their team wins, it'll be the best experience of the day. But they don't want to play. They might say they want to play, but you line them up in front of a 320-pound defensive lineman whose only job is to kill them, and they're going to say, you know, I'll just get a hot dog, and you guys play, I watch. And that works really well for college football. That's the way it's designed. But it's a really poor way for a church to operate. You see, what happens is, is, is fans think that they need players, professionals, to do the church stuff. And so if a fan has a neighbor who gets really, really sick, they need to call a professional to come in and do the praying because that's what the players do. Um, If they want their children to know about the Bible and to know about Jesus, well, then they need to take them to the professionals so the professionals will teach them the things they need to know. If they have a coworker, who doesn't know Jesus and and wants to connect to Christ in some way, well, then they need to call a pastor, a player, a professional to come tell their coworker about Jesus. Because, see, I'm a fan, I'm not a player. And that's what happens eventually in a fan-based church. Lots and lots of fans, very few players. And then uh, uh, a final challenge of this fan-based model of church is that when a better... Show comes to town when a better experience, a better game shows up. The fans will leave one church and go to the other church, and it makes complete sense. Let's let, let me put it this way: Here in Charleston, we have the Charleston River Dogs, and they have a great stadium, Joe Riley Stadium. It's uh, one of the best-attended minor league uh, ballparks in America, but they're they are affiliated with the New York Yankees. Now, imagine if the New York Yankees decided to wisely leave New York City and move to Charleston. We all understand why they would do that, right? Good call. And they built another stadium. They built a new Yankee stadium right here in Charleston. What would happen to the fan base of the Riverdocks? It would dry up, wouldn't it? I mean, it's it's fine to watch single-A players, but when you can watch the best players in the world, when you can go see Derek Jeter and A-Rod in person, I mean... I hate the Yankees, but I'd go watch them play, you know, if they're here in town. I'm a baseball fan. Here's how that plays out. We're God fans, and we love God. We like God. We like church. But you know what? If a better church comes along, if a better experience comes along, fans inevitably will get up and go to the new experience, you know? They have better music. They have, I like their children's ministry better. You know, over here, the music isn't as loud over here, the music is louder. I I had this last night. I had someone come up and say, hey, a coworker came to me and they don't like some of the changes going on in the youth ministry. And so they told me they're going to leave Seacoast and go across town to this church because they like the way they're doing youth ministry better. And I thought, of course, why wouldn't you? They have a better show. Go to that show. They told me what show it was. I love that show, okay? It's a great show. And as a fan, absolutely. See what I'm saying? That's a challenge in a fan-based environment. And that's not what Paul's describing. Paul is describing a church in your house, a place where you are closely connected to one another that looks more like an extended family than it looks like a big game with a lot of fans that come and watch. He's talking about a 24-7 experience. So what would a church in your house look like? Well, you know, we thought we would experiment, it, experiment with it at my house, and we invited the video cameras over, and um, it's not going so well. Take a look at this. Ever since Jeff and I started having church in our house, things have been a little different for us. It's great having so many people around. You know, it's really bringing us closer to our neighbors. Hey, what are you doing in the neighborhood? I can't even get to my house. Hey Ted, uh, see you at the HOA meeting. I'm sorry. <laughs> we have a relaxed time of worship to kick things off. Welcome to Seacoast. So we'll just stand and worship with us today. so nice to have little children around again. Yes. Ooh, you don't want to go in there. We just had a blowout. Oh, and by the way, you're out of toilet paper. Let's go. You know, we're still figuring things out, but I think it's working. Great job, everybody. Remember, two services next week. You're out of toilet paper. As you can see, um... If we try to translate what we're doing on the weekends and put it in our house, that doesn't make any sense at all. So, so what are we talking about? Are we talking about giving up the weekend service? No, not at all. I mean, there's a ton of value in connecting with each other and inspirational worship and hearing a, a, a word from God and instruction. We're not talking about taking that experience and, and putting it in your house. So what would it look like? Well, we get a clue from just following Jesus because Jesus is our pattern in life. Whatever we want to do in life we can learn by just seeing what Jesus did. How did Jesus work with the church that he connected with, his group, his oikos? Well, they regularly went to synagogue together. They connected with other believers, but they did church in the regular rhythms of life. They did what they normally would do, but church was a part of it. When they ate, that was church. Jesus would tell them stories and they would pray around meals. When they went on road trips, that was a part of church. When they went fishing together, that was a part of church. They went on vacation. They went to the beach together. When they went to Sidon, that's actually a beach community. And that was a part of of doing church. They went to celebrations together. They went to banquets and parties and festivals. And Jesus weaved what it meant to be a Christ follower through all of that. In other words, instead of really making life different and, and, and strange and calling that church, Jesus took life as it is, as it was, as it exists, and he wove church into that, being the church with, with his oikos. So how would we do that? Let's just, we take simple steps. We begin to see our everyday life through the uh, lens of Jesus, the rhythm of our life through the lens of how Jesus would live it. How could our meals be church? How many of you eat meals? Do you eat meals? Some of you do. How many of you ever eat meals with someone else? More than one person. Good, good. That could be church. All you, all you do is, is one, one of the easy things you can do is stop doing the drop fork prayer. Do you know how the drop fork prayer works? When you're with someone, you don't know if they pray over their meals. How's it, here's how a drop fork. You accidentally knock your fork on the ground. And then as you're picking it up, dear Jesus, please bless this food to my body. Amen. And they don't ever have to know, you know? What if instead you said, you know what? Um, in my life, I like to just take a moment when I, when I eat and I just like to thank God for, for my food. Is that cool with you? Is that okay if I do that? I'd like to pray for our, our food. I'll tell you what, 99 times out of 100, they're gonna say, yeah, that's cool. No problem. All of a sudden, your meal is church. I mean, you can begin to talk about what God's doing in your life. How could golf become church? Well, you could quit using so many four-letter words. That would help. That'd be a start. <laughs> what if, in just the rhythm of the game, you're praying, "God, give me wisdom in conversation. Let let me just let me just live being a Christian out loud in the 17th green." As you talk about what God is teaching you in your life, can become, can become church. I have I have a friend who has taken celebrations to a whole nother level. Now he has elementary school kids, and he and his wife have figured out how to take the milestones of elementary school and turn them into parties for the families in his. Uh, kids classes like when they finished uh, when they finished first quarter of the year they have a first quarter party and they invite all the kids and their families over to their house and they just they just party about the first quarters over we made it through the first quarter yay and they pray desperately god give us god-inspired conversations now during the first quarter party they're not going oh by the way you're all going to hell if you don't come to heaven with me or come to church with me that's not it but they're just living being a christian out loud that's church in their oikos. I mean, it can look a lot of different ways. It's within the natural rhythm of who we are. But it's not just about connecting. It's not just about reaching out to other people. But it's also about changing, transforming our community. We live in a broken world. We live in a world that breaks God's heart. When God sees foster kids who are shuttled from house to house to house with no place to call their own, it breaks his heart. When God sees that little children in America go to bed hungry at night, it breaks his heart. When God sees people who have lost their dignity because they've lost their home, it breaks his heart. When he sees single moms who don't have a clue how they're going to pay the rent check next month and they don't know where the money's going to come from, it breaks God's heart. When he looks at a world where, where millions of children have no access to clean water, just clean water. And that single thing alone could free them from disease and help them succeed in life. that breaks God's heart. And what's he do about it? He breaks your heart too. He lets you feel what he feels. He lets you see what he sees. He pulls back the curtain a little bit and says, look at this need, look at this hurt, look at this pain. And then he says, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? And if you're like me, it's kind of overwhelming because what could I do? I mean, I'm just one person. I could go volunteer somewhere, but how could I really make a difference? What if my oikos, what if my household, what if my, my life group, whatever my connection is, what if we organized around a single mission in life? What if we decided we are going to make a difference for single moms? or we're going to make a difference for homeless people, or we're going to make a difference for people who are in this country who can't speak English, and we're going to reach out to that subgroup as, as a group. And suddenly we begin praying together and eating together and, and laughing together and doing church in the rhythms of our life and inviting people far from God into our oikos. And together as a group of 20 and 30 and 40 people, We began to do mission together. We began to make a dent in our community. We began to shine the light of Jesus into the dark corners of the world. Imagine your oikos transformed into a life-changing group. I've seen this happen. I've seen here at Seacoast as people have uh, created illegal life groups. Let me explain what that means. You know, a life group's only supposed to go grow to about 16, 18 people. And then what are you supposed to do? If you've been around long enough, you know, you're supposed to divide, right? Well, these people have gone underground and they're hiding from their coaches and they've, they've kept growing and growing. And now there's 20 and now there's 25. You know who you are. We see you out there. You're not hiding from us. And there's 30 people in their life group and they can barely fit in their living room. And some of these people have said, hey, there's so many of us, we can make a difference. And, and they're serving in adopt the block and they're serving down at Crisis Ministries. And, and together, they're making a difference in their community. And, and what if all of a sudden at Seacoast, we said, oh, by the way, that's legal. It's okay to grow a life group as big as it needs to grow, to be small enough to care, but big enough to dare. We've connected over the last year or so with a church in England, in Sheffield, England. Sherry and I met these guys in Europe a about three years ago, and I've just been listening. What's going on, God? What are you doing over in Europe? In this church, they call these, um, the church in your house, this oikos, this ecclesia in your oikos, they call it a missional community. And they're usually about 20 or 30 people, sometimes as many as 40 people. And they're just doing radical things for Jesus. I mean, some of these guys have... Uh, moved out of their apartments. There's nice middle-class apartments and they've moved into the poorest part of town and moved into houses and apartments in the poorest part of town. A little group of Christians that have begun to open their oikos up to people far from God and they're making a difference right in the middle of that blighted area of town. Some people, uh, another group of people, 20-somethings, saw that there was a group of kids in their town, very poor kids, who had no access to, to soccer, to football. And so they went into the city and they started a football club for these kids and they finance it and they run it. And they have hundreds of kids coming and connecting and that's their oikos and they're making a difference. I sat in a house in Sheffield that looks just like my house in a neighborhood that looks just like my neighborhood. And I listened as this family said, this is our mission field. God has put us in this neighborhood. We are missionaries to this neighborhood. Our neighbors around us are far from God. They aren't gonna get up and walk into a church, but we're the church. And so we invite them into our home and they come to know us in this church. People still connect in a celebration like this, but they do church out in their oikos. And in a a, a city where less than 5% of the people ever go to church, ever, Christmas, Easter, ever, less than 5% ever darken the door of the church. This church is growing by hundreds. They've doubled in the last year, year and a half. They have thousands of people connected in these missional communities all over. And now they're talking to us because they want to figure out how to be multi-site. They want to have multiple centers with multiple missional communities all over England. And you're going to begin to hear rumblings from England about how God is doing something. And it's through these ecclesia in the oikos, church in the house. What, what is God calling you to do? I don't know. Why did God use Philemon? Was it because Philemon was the most educated or Philemon was the most spiritual or or Philemon was, was the smartest? I don't think so. I think the reason God used Philemon because there was someone that God wanted to love through Philemon. There was something broken in Philemon's community. There was someone hurting in Philemon's community there was someone who was hungry who was poor who was a widow who was an orphan and God loved that person so much that he wanted to change their lives and he wanted to do it through Philemon why did God use Philemon because Philemon was available Philemon said I can't play music I can't preach I I I can't teach a Sunday school class I can't I don't know how to do children's ministry I'm not even hardly qualified to wave a car into a parking place. But God, I'm willing to figure out how a ecclesia can meet in my oikos. I'm willing to figure out how a church can meet in my house. What's your next step? Maybe your next step is very simple. Maybe it's just saying, God, who is my oikos? Who is it? And just to... Figure that out. Just that. God, who are you calling me to love? Maybe your next step is to rally your group, whatever it looks like, around a mission, a cause, a people group, a person, a place that you could make a difference. Maybe that's your next step. Maybe your next step is that you are Onisimus. You need to be forgiven. You need to be loved. You're the one that God's calling, inviting, asking into the oikos, the household of God. And maybe your next step is to say, okay, I'm ready, Jesus, I'm here. Let me pray for you. Jesus, I pray that in the next couple of minutes that you'll speak through us. Lord, I know that your spirit is here. The Bible says that where two or three gather in a place you're there. And so we know you're here. Lord, I pray your spirit will move. I pray that it will move through the worship team in, in every campus. I pray that our hearts will be pricked and will be changed. Lord, I know in my own life, as I've prepared and preached this message, you have been speaking to me saying, Jeff, are you going to take that next step? Are you going to take that next step? I pray for everyone here, for the person who's far from you, that today is the day they, they, they say, I want to come back. I want to return. For that person who just needs to open up their family, their home, their group to people. Lord, I pray that you'll give them the courage. Lord, I pray that you'll call each one of us and speak to our hearts. In your name, amen.